The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Karl Marx turns 200 years old. Reviewing his legacy and his 10-point checklist for a communist utopia. And understanding why socialism does not work. And socialist history in America. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show exclusive to the Blaze where you come for the action, but you stay for the principles. Today's going to be a very special show. Today's going to be a show that's going to be about principles and just break, breaking down an ideology. Today's a special show. I'm not going to talk about the news of the day, I'm not going to talk to you about what's going on in the world. There are plenty of people telling you that. But I wanted to acknowledge one of my mistakes right off the bat. So I'm a typical guy, you know, I'm not very remember of, you know, I get forgetful about certain things and, you know, you go through your everyday lives and you forget certain dates that are important. You forget anniversaries and me being a jerk and a douchebag, I forgot it was Karl Marx's birthday a couple of weeks ago. Apparently he would have been 200 years old. And I came across this not because I knew about his birthday and about been 200, but I came across it because people were talking about it. And I thought it was going to be important today to actually talk about Karl Marx. Actually have an honest conversation about Karl Marx, about his ideology, about his impact on the world. But also to talk about what he actually wanted and what he called for in his Communist Manifesto. And actually have a look at our society today and see, people say Karl Marx is wrong. People don't like Marxism. But let's see the influence of him on society today. And let's see if we can write that path. And then also I want to, at the end of the show, I want to share some history with you. Because a lot of people say, well, look, you know, I, I get what you say about Marxism, but it's never truly been tried. It's never been tried in America. That's not true. I'm going to talk to you about American history and about socialism, about what socialism and Marxism did in your country. But let me read from the article first, because the New York Times, you know that great paper, you know that prestigious paper who just has such great credibility, just has just awesome things to say. Well, they've always had this infatuation with communism and like last year, there was, I think it was 2017, they put all these great articles about how, you know, Lenin, you know, the, the despot from Russia, Lenin was a hero environmentalist. They also then put out another article, I didn't read this because I just didn't care and I didn't want to know, but apparently women have better sex lives under socialism. Hmm. I... You know, there's a part of me that doesn't want to read, and there's the part of me that, you know, is curious and believes in facts and figures. I want to sort of see the research of how they proved this or what they said to to get this opinion out there. But this opinion was written by Jason Barker, 
and it was titled Happy Birthday Karl Marx You Were Right and I want to read a couple of quips from the article from you and then we're going to break down into into Marxism and into Karl Marx's own words so the article starts off in in typical way that you would you know paint an ideologue like Marx on May 5th 1818 in the southern town of German town of Trier in the picturesque wine growing region of the Moselle Valley Karl Marx was born. At the time, Trier was one-tenth the size it is today, with a population of around 12,000 people. According to one of Marx's recent biographers, Trier is one of those towns where, although everyone doesn't know everyone, many know a lot about many. Such provincial constraints were no match for Marx's boundless intellectual enthusiasm. What a way to open up an article about Karl Marx, huh? I wonder would they write the same picturesque of Donald Trump or George Bush. Doubt it, but Karl Marx, absolutely. You can read the article, and but I'm just going to make some points through the article. As we've reached, I'm reading from the article, as we've reached the bicentenary of Marx's birthday, what lessons might we draw from his dangerous and delirious philosophical legacy? What precisely is Marx's lasting contribution? Today, the legacy would appear to be alive and well. Since the turn of the millennium, countless books have appeared, from scholarly works to popular biographies, broadly endorsing Marx's reading of capitalism and its enduring relevance to our neoliberal age. Marx had become the philosopher of the middle class. What did he mean? I believe he meant that educated liberal opinion is today more or less unanimous in agreements that Marx's basic thesis that capitalism is driven by a deeply divisive class struggle in which the ruling class minority appropriates the surplus labor of the working class majority as profit is correct. Even liberal economists such as uh, Rubini agree that Marx's conviction that capitalism has an inbuilt tendency to destroy itself remains as present as ever. It later on continued, while most are in agreement about Marx's diagnosis of capitalism, opinion on how to treat its disorder is thoroughly divided. And this is where Marx's originality and profound importance as a philosopher lies. First, first, let us be clear, Marx Marx arrives at no magical formula for for exiting the enormous social and economic contradictions that global capitalism entails. Because according to Oxfam, 82% of the global wealth generated in 2017 went to the richest, world's richest 1%. What Marx did, did achieve, however, through his self-styled materialistic thought, were the critical weapons for undermining capitalist ideological claim to be the only game in town. So let's just talk about a couple of points here. First, there is a bit of an irony in that the popularity of Marx today is be true solely to the beneficial benefit of capitalism. You know, there was a time in our world, you know, when Karl Marx was around, that books were considered, the reason you would buy books is, it's kind of like why you buy a, a Ferrari today. It was a, it was a, it was a statement piece in society you know if you drive a ferrari now or a lamborghini or even to lesser extent if you you know have an ipad or a apple computer it's it's more it's not that the apple computer is better than everyone else's computer it's really not it's just a fashion statement it's selling the world something about you that you're cool you're hip you're you go with what's you're trendy same with the ferrari 
you're making a statement to society. Hey, look at me. I have a Ferrari. I have a Lamborghini. Look at me, baby. Back when Karl Marx was around, books were kind of something similar because not everyone had them. You know, it's a modern day phenomenon, even in modern times, like in the last five, ten years, that books have become so available. It's mainly due to sites like Amazon, true to technology. You know, books, when I, I always say this, I'm in my mid-30s. When I was in school, the only way you could learn and, and do extracurricular activities was going to the library. And if you wanted to, let's say, to learn something about the moon landing or you wanted to learn about Karl Marx, you'd have to go and, like, get a book. And then you'd have to, like, go to the back of the book where all the references were and look up Karl Marx or the moon landing or whatever it is and go to the pages and read about it. And then you'd go to another book and then, you know, have to go through the research. Now, literally, Ben Fulger, you sit on the toilet, you go on your iPhone or your phone and Google stuff. You get books for free. If you, I, I do this all the time. I go onto Amazon routinely once every six, eight weeks, and I go onto Kindle books for free. And I've downloaded loads of books that I'll, I'll never read in entirety, but I've read different papers. I remember about two months ago, three months ago, I downloaded all of Edmund Burke's writings for free. I'll never read all of Edmund Burke's work, but I wanted them for research for something I'm working on, and I got them all for free. That's true capitalism. That's true innovation. That's true free markets. That's true a profit motive. It's ironic that one of the things that has led to somewhat of a revival in Marx is capitalism. So there is, that's the first point. The second point is the philosopher of the middle class. I have been, how I got this show was by ringing Glenn as a fan one day and saying, you have to stop using this word, Glenn, please, and making a case why you should stop using the middle class. It's actually nice to see someone, even though it's a New York Times columnist, actually point out that the middle class is a Marxist term. It's why you should not use the term middle class. Because all it is, is it's just replacing the proletariat with middle class. The rich are the bourgeoisie, and the poor are the lumpen proletariat. They're Marxist terms. So it is actually nice to see that he is the philosopher of the middle class, which is true. But here's the thing we need to have a conversation about. Marx does arrive at a formula. It's a formula that is repeated through history. And it is, take from the haves to give to the have-nots. This is my biggest frustration when I try and debate people about rich versus poor. You know all this class warfare. You'll see all these stats about Oxfam. Oxfam, 82% of the global wealth generated in 2017 went to the world's richest 1%. What does that have to do with anything? I live a very poor life. I live a very poor life. I cannot find work for the life of me, full-time work. I haven't had a full-time job in nearly seven years. My job is I am a contract worker, and it's been even reduced more over the last couple of months, but I work about four or five days a month. I live off less than less than $500 a month. Everything else I do is on a voluntary basis. I can't find a way to add meaning to society that will pay me. I'm trying to find ways, but that is the ultimate situation I am in. I'm in a country where if you Google my name, all my work comes up that I have done for free. I cannot find a way to get out of the financial situation I am in. 
It sucks, but it is what it is. When I ask these people, go, well, they're all about the richest 1% and all them having the wealth, I ask them, what have they done directly that has resulted in my situation? How has a business owner gone to make profit hurt me? The truth that hurts me, and here's the truth, there is no government program to help me get out of my financial situation. There's not one. What needs to happen is employers understanding that, you know, hiring me is not a risk, which it would be. Because if someone found out who I was, that I was working for them, there'd be war. Because you cannot dare have someone who's a free thinker. Someone who actually believes in freedom working for you. Now, if I was a Marxist, I'd have no problem getting a job. But the fact that people have made profit through innovation, through offering products and services to people, and people have taken them up on their offer of those products and services, and they have got rich from that, hasn't kept me down. Another way, this is in a lesser aspect of it, another way I can't find a job? Because of the government. Because there's no innovation. There's no incentive to be innovative anymore. Because of the bailouts that we got because the government spent way out of its means when the times were good and it has hurt the economy so much that there isn't that many jobs to apply for over here and there hasn't been in a long time there are some jobs but there's not a lot of jobs so the fact that 82% of the world's wealth generated goes to the richest 1% affects me in no way shape or form all it does to highlight that is to say they have something you don't. <coughs> that is all that is to do. I'll continue with the article. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels wrote, The bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honoured and looked upon with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its page wage labourers. The idea of a classless and stateless society would, become to, would come to define both Marx and Engels' idea of communism, which is ironic. So if you actually believe what Marx says, because I'm going to point to his own words in a couple of minutes, but he, he said he wanted a classless society, which if you actually look at what the left, quote-unquote, and Democrats and, and progressives in America today want, they don't actually want a classless society. They might say that, but they really don't by their actions. Their words and their actions mean two different things. And I just want to give you one example of this. And it's a controversial example. Look at how they talk about gender. Look at how they talk about gender. So if if you are someone like me who believes in the tradition of there are two genders, because I actually believe in science, okay? There are two genders. There are male and there's female. There's an X chromosome and there's a Y chromosome. That's scientific. You, Unless the laws of science have changed since the last time I looked at it, that's the way it is, okay? However, to a liberal, to a progressive, they would go, that's, that's John, that's hate speech. You know, it's people like you pro- propagating that myth of there's only two genders that causes all the problems in society. And they'll accuse, we need a classless society. We need a, a labelless society. This is what we want. However, here's the problem. They always go and create new labels. Like, they would have some... If they wanted to believe in a classless society, here's what they would do. Look, I don't agree there's two genders. I'm not going to tell you there's, there's 10 genders, there's 20 genders, there's 90 genders, because I actually believe in Marx's ideology of a classless society. I'm just going to say gender doesn't matter. 
you can feel whatever way you want, but we're not going to label anything. We believe in a classless society. Just let people be people. Just There is no male, there is no female, and while I wouldn't agree with that, I'd at least respect their ideology for being consistent, of being classless. Of going, look, you are what you are. If you're a non-binary or a binary or a cisgender, whatever, all the 90-something or 100 genders there are now, at least that would be somewhat consistent. You're saying you want a classless society? Then that is a classless, that's a genderless society. There is no genders. It's You can be what you want, you however you want, but there is no label to it. Because you cannot have a label of society and a, and a classless society and then go create new classes. I'll make a similar point about what Marx said in a couple of minutes. This transition, going back to the article, to a new society where relations among people, rather than capital relations, finally determine an individual's worth, is arguably proving to be quite a task. Do you know why it's proving to be quite a task? Again, this is another example of your words saying one thing and your deeds saying another thing. You want a society where relations among people rather than capital relations determine an individual's worth? Then stop talking about money all the time. Stop writing all these reports of, well, 82% of the money we made in 2017 was held by the 1%. All you're doing is basing people by their worth. You talk about people in the middle class in Baltimore used to be a a part of the rich and the millionaires and billionaires if you earn more than a quarter of a million dollars. It's now $100,000. It's getting lower to get into the the millionaire and elite class in Baltimore. Aren't you lucky if you live there? But it's all about financial aspects of them. They're saying they want to base people on their relations and make an individual's worth based on that, not on their capital. I'm all for that if you actually practice it. I actually believe in the treat the, the, the words of Martin Luther King. Let's judge a man by the content of his character. That is a wonderful attribute, and it would sh- I would welcome it on any, on any grounds. Marx doesn't know that. Martin Luther King doesn't know that. It's just a general good idea. I don't look at someone and kind of go, well, how much do you earn? Oh, you earn $100,000. I'm going to talk and treat you a certain way. And then look at someone else going, oh, you only earn $1,000 a month? Ah, oh, you're a bum. Oh, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to talk down to you. I earn more than you. I don't treat people like that. However, the left and the Democrats and some Republicans now base everything around materialistic wealth and capital relations and that defines their relationships. They're playing out Marx's what he wanted. I could finish off the article because this is the conclusion. Marx, as I have said, does not offer a one-size-fits-all formula for enacting social change, but he does offer a powerful intellectual acid test for that change. On that basis, we are destined to keep citing and testing his ideas until the kind of society that he struggled to bring about and that increasing numbers of us desire is finally realised. So what type of society did Karl Marx seek to bring about? When we come back, I'm going to read Karl Marx's own words to you. And then we can have an honest conversation about what he wanted and have an honest conversation about, well, which party in America, or is it both parties, that are actually following the Communist Manifesto? Because you might be surprised it's not just the left following the Communist Manifesto. Don't go anywhere, America. We'll be right back. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.
the Glenn Beck program. When you're in a court of law and you're a jury, you can't feel your way through it. Yeah. That's the opposite of our justice system. You don't go, well, I just kind of have a gut. No, 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 no. No, there's no gut here. What are the facts? Can you make a case based on the facts? Did they make the case to you based on the facts? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty high standard. It is a high standard. The Glenn Beck Program. Freedom's Disciple On Demand. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. As always, I'm on social media. uh, Twitter, Freedom Disciple. At Facebook, at JonathanDunn58. So Marxism, what did Marx actually say? In some ways, Marx, actually in a lot of ways, Marx gives the answer and highlights why America is so exceptional and why America is unique in our world today. Because Karl Marx, while Karl Marx is known and is, you know, one of these authors that gets all this credit for, you know, his philosophy and, you know, so many philosophies have sprung from it, in many ways... His philosophy was no different than kings and queens. In no, in many ways, it's the exact same. It's just replacing the power with the people with the power with the the individual. It's the exact same principle. It is statism. It's what it is. But I actually want to read some of his own words to you. And this is from the the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels. So when he talks about, he opens up and he talks about the, the, there's a specter haunting Europe. And I quote, the history of all existing society is the history of class struggles. Free man and slave, patriotician, plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman. In a word, oppressor and oppressed. And a couple of paragraphs later, he says... Our epoch, the epoch of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinctive feature. It has simplified the class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So this is why America is exceptional. You see, Karl Marx looked at society, and in some ways, I, you know, some I will say this that's controversial to, if you believe in freedom. Everyone, there's a lot of people who are conservative thinkers who go, Karl Marx got everything wrong. Karl Marx was right about nothing. In some ways, I disagree with that. It depends on the, the, what we're talking about. It's like Bernie Sanders. Everyone goes, Bernie Sanders is right about nothing. In some ways, Karl Marx is like Bernie Sanders. In fact, he will look at society and, and highlight a problem or something that needs to be discussed and addressed. It's just his solutions are 100% wrong. Karl Marx has never come up with a good solution. It's just more of the same. But if you look at it, because Karl Marx is right when he talks about history. You know, hist- history of the world is broken up into class struggles. You know, he talks about the free man and the slave, the lord and the serf, the guildmaster and the journeyman, of oppressor and oppressed. Every country has had that. This is not an Irish thing or an American thing or a European thing or an Australian thing. It's a, it's a world man problem. There has always been oppressors and oppressed. America was different. America was exceptional because what America decided to do with your founding fathers and your Declaration of Independence was you just said, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We actually see the oppression. We actually see, we've seen it, we've 
we witnessed it firsthand. We have been the oppressed against the English king, but we have tried to fight him and it hasn't worked, so that we fought a revolution over it. But what you actually decided to do was, through your Declaration of Independence and your Constitution, was, okay, here's what we're going to do. We, we know there's a class struggle. We know there's, a, there's struggles between society, between different people in society. Here's what we're going to do. Instead of simplifying it like Marx does, just simplify the class antagonisms of, you know, the oppressed and the oppressors and the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to say everyone's created equal. A revolutionary term. that not, We're not going to simplify it. We're just going to get rid of it. We're just going to say all men are created equal. And we're going to say that they are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights and among those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There is no class system in America. It's not what your founders envisaged. They said, you know what, everyone is equal, and everyone has these rights from God. That is why America is an exceptional, exceptional nation. Because you did the exact opposite to what every other nation has done. You taught of things before they were even taught about in mainstream society. Everyone loves today to go around, well, I'm for equality. Are you? Are you really for equality? Or are you just for equality in your mind or your definition of it? The American founders and the American founding documents to this day, 240 years later, are the only documents that truly talk about equality, about real equality, about freedom, about how you have rights, that it doesn't matter where you come from. This is ingrained in your society. You used to mock countries. Everyone gets the word, the wording of this poem wrong, Emma Lazarus' poem on the Statue of Liberty. Everyone gets it wrong. Everyone gets the meaning. That is the biggest slam on Marxism, on Europe, on everybody. Because Karl Marx had three groups of people. Everyone only loves to talk about two, but Karl Marx actually had three. Karl Marx had the proletariat, which was the workers, you know, what you'd call them in the class. He had the lumpen proletariat, you know, the prisoners, the no good people, people who didn't work, the infirm, handicapped. If you couldn't work and couldn't contribute, we didn't want to know you. So we call them the, the downtrodden, the masses. And then you had the, the bourgeoisie, the capitalist, the landowner. That's your rich and millionaires and billionaires. America doesn't matter. No, everyone's equal. There is no class system. You are equal. You're the same as you and you're the same as someone else. You have no different rights. You're all the same because rights don't come from a government. They don't come from Karl Marx. They don't come from a presidency. They come from your creator. And if that's your creator happens to be the Christian God or the Jewish God or, or the Muslim Allah or the, the, a piece of paper or a spoon, that's fine. They come from your creator or if it comes from nature. But I want to read something to you because, again, here's why Karl Marx, if you read some of his stuff, his writings... He later on continued in the Communist Manifesto. The discovery of America, the rounding of the Cape, opened up fresh new ground for the rising bourgeoisie. The East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase of means of exchange and in commodities generally, gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never known before, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the teetering feudal system as a rapid development. The feudal system of industry in which industrial production was monopolized by closed guilds now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of new markets. What did Karl Marx just do there? 
Karl Marx just made the ans- made the argument, even though I don't know whether he knew it or not, for free markets. The idea that you would have trade with colonies, that you would have an increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally been more available. This led to a revolutionary uh, rapid development of getting rid of the fuels of the system. That where industrial production was mono- monopolized by closed guilds, it now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of new markets. That is an argument for free markets. That's not an argument for more control for what Marx later will talk about, which we'll go to. Here's another argument to show that Karl Marx could actually talk about the problems, but just his solutions were horrible. Meantime, the markets kept ever growing, the demand ever rising. Even the manufacturer no longer sufficed. Thereupon, steam and machine revolutionary indu- revolutionized industrial production. What he is saying at the start of the Communist Manifesto, and this is only on page, it says page four, but realistically it's page two. Because page one and two is just the date, the the title, and who printed it. On page two, he's making an argument for free market economics and advancement. What leads to advancement? What led to the machine revolutionized and the industrial production? What led to that? Innovation. It was someone sitting there going, I think I can do things better. I think I can do things quicker. You look at society. Why did society advance more? Why has society advanced more in the last 250 years and realistically even in the last 100 years than in the prior 2,000 years? Why? I always give this as a challenge to anyone who doesn't understand the greatness of America. Pick any part of society. Don't let me, you know, try and guide you down a path. Pick any part of society that has grown and has advanced, whether it's housing, whether it's transport, whether it's food, whether it's cooking, whether it's medicine, whether it's communication, whether it's leisure time, whether it's, you know, what you do at fun time, whether it's the standard of living. Just pick any part of society and look at how it advanced from an arbitrary point in time, the time birth of Christ, 0 AD, to 1800. Very little advancement. Medicine was generally the same. You still farmed. Your houses were still the same. You still had, you know, were transported by horses and oxen carts and boats. But why in the last 200 years have we gone to the moon? Have we created cars, created planes? Medicine has got better. Food has got better. I don't know about y'all, but, you know, I have some people who go to me, I wish I was born in a different time. You know, you know, you have all these friends. Who go, oh, I wish I was born 100 years ago. I wish I w- I don't wish I was born at any other time. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of indoor plumbing. You know, I'll be honest. You know, when I got to go pee pee at 3 a.m. in the morning, I know this is TMI. It's I don't like walking across a wood floor to go to a tile floor that's cold at 3 a.m. in the morning, especially in Ireland when it's really cold. It's not a fun experience at 3 a.m. The thoughts of having to get up, go downstairs, outside to go to the toilet, especially if it's wany and it's cold and it's wet and it's miserable, I, that does not appeal to me at all. It's a hard thing to go across the landing at 3 a.m. So I'm a big fan of indoor plumbing. You know, I'm a big fan of being able to store food. This is the society that we've advanced. But what led to that innovation? What led to that idea that, hey, you know what, from 6,000 miles away, a crazy Irish guy can sit at his desk, can sit at his desk, can talk into a microphone, record it, save it on his desktop, upload it to a website called Dropbox, that my, my producer in Dallas can then get it instantly, download it, 
make me hopefully sound a bit better than I always than I usually do. Put in a bit of music, a bit of bumpers, put in ads, and then can upload it to a site and you can listen to it at any time. You can download it or you can listen to it live. That what created that? What led all those things to be happen? Innovation, profit motive. That is what made the world great. When we come back, I want to talk to you what Karl Marx said. Because Karl Marx had 10 steps to get to a communist utopia. And I want to share those 10 steps with you of what he wanted. And let's look at the impacts of them. And actually, let's look at what would happen if we actually examined America's political parties, both left and right, and compared how much of Karl Marx's manifesto they actually follow. Don't go anywhere, America. We'll be right back. You're listening to Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. As always, this show is on every major platform that you can find. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play Music, Stitcher FM, Omni FM, wherever you can find a major platform. Look up Freedom's Disciple. Please share it with your family and friends. And if you're on a site like iTunes, please consider leaving us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. So Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto had 10 points of what he wanted to pretty much do and he thought this would achieve a communist utopia. So let's go through them, shall we? And let's have an honest and frank conversation. So number one, abolition of all property and land and application of all rents of land to the public purposes. So basically there is no private property. Now, that is a big step when you go to Karl Marx. It's, it's, it's an understanding that you cannot have private ownership of things, that the state is the ever overlord. The state is the body. Now, they'll wrap it up in that, well, it's actually not the state, John. It's the people. People, state, same thing. It's a tyranny. It's the tyranny of the majority. Imagine that living in that world where the state owns everything, that there are no property rights, that there are no rights to private property, whether it's a private property for your house, whether it's a private piece of private property for your land, or whether it's a piece of private property for your business, that there is none. Now, in America right now, you actually do see the erosion of private property rights. You have land taxes, because that's what they want, application of all rents uh, of land to the public purposes. So you actually have land taxes in America. That you pay. You have to pay property taxes. And in some states, property taxes are incredibly high. I know for a fact in New Jersey, I don't know the actual offhand figures of rates and stuff, but I know people who live in New Jersey and the property taxes are incredible. The fees are through the roof. That is a version of it. You also have the other version where you have cases of imminent domain. Where if it's, if the you know, it's your property... But if the state feels and there's a compelling interest, we can destroy it. We can get and remove you from your property. We can give you what it's worth or a couple of times what it's worth and you have to sell. If you, Even if you don't want to sell, it doesn't matter. You have to. I know if you, if you listen to Glenn, he always tells the story, and it's an important story of New York, Rockefeller Center, where you see in this middle of all these skyscrapers, this, this little small building. Why? Because Rockefeller couldn't get the guy to buy and there was no reason, to, there was no way the state could force him. 
That was private property rights, true and true. Today, in 2018, if that same story happened, do you think that little person would survive? Not a chance. Especially if it was someone like Rockefeller with the power he held. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. In many ways, you have a progressive income tax. Obviously, this one's always hard to describe to people because people's, you know, when you say a, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax, what people define as progressive is varied to per- person to person. It's not like they have a number. But when you look at some of the, the taxes you have to pay when it's just on your income, you know, when you look at the income tax and you got a, you know, your payroll tax and all these other taxes that get on, then you have maybe a state income tax. It's all taking money away from you. You know, when you think of the, the income tax, what was it levied at? It was only a couple of percent and it was no more than five and then it was no more than seven. And you look at what it is now, how much it's grown in a hundred years, you, you have progressed towards it. It might start as a simple, noble thing, but a government program never goes away. I know Ireland has a very progressive tax code. Ireland has a tax code. If you earn, it's 32,000 euros, so exchange rate fluctuates. But give or take about $35,000. Every penny you earn over $35,000 is taxed at 40%. That's progressive. And eventually that will come to America. And it will probably go lower than 35000 The reason this is important is because it stops upward mobility. The reason for low taxes and for a non-progressive income tax is because it lets you save for your future. Just to give you some figures, if you earn, if you have a a, a system where I believe in where there's no income tax, it'd be great, but even, you know, a limited income tax, you can, if you earn $50,000, you can, you know, maybe live off of 10, 20 and live really poor, but then you can invest the 30,000 and you can maybe, you know, improve your life or invest it in business or invest it in a college fund, invest it in yourself. You can make it better. And then you can pull yourself up from rags to riches. That's what happened in America in certain places with loads of different people. They made a better life for themselves because they got to control more of their, what they earned and what they did. When you have a heavy progressive tax code, you don't have that. Because if you actually get to a point where you earn some money, you're taxed at 30, 40, 50%. And then it doesn't, it stops you reinvesting. It stops you investing in yourself. It stops you trying to grow. Number three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. This is one of the most controversial things and it's one of the most sickest things i see in society and it's in america it's in ireland the income inheritance tax in some places the inheritance tax is 30 percent, which i think is criminal first of all it's double taxation you know if you pay income tax on what you earn you've paid it just because you die doesn't mean do you you have to pay tax again and if you just look at it in simple human terms the taxman is always looking for his money he's always looking for his share and if you earn money you work Hey, give me some. Oh, you, you made an investment. Congratulations, you made a profit. Give me some. Oh, you have this house and you're selling up and you're moving somewhere else. You know the profit you make on the house? Give me some. I always think it's the sickest one when you look, hey, hey it's time to give me some money. Why? You died. You got to pay your fair share. Imagine looking for money when they, people die. I always think it's incredible criminal. But what it does is it stops the incentive to work hard. You know, if you understand human beings, human beings are incredible creatures generally. You know, if you look at generation after generation and you talk to people, parents, regardless of whether it's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, today, 
understand one fundamental thing. The chances are extraordinarily high your offspring will have more opportunities than you ever had, than you could ever dream possible, unless something majorly goes wrong. But the chances even to this day that your offspring will have more opportunity. They'll have more opportunity for advancement. They'll have more opportunity to live the way they want to live. They'll have more opportunity to earn more money. It's incredible. Yet, despite them, their offspring having more opportunity than they ever will, parents will usually sacrifice to ensure that happens. That's the incentive. You want to help your kids. You want to help your kids along. If you abolish all inheritance tax, there's no legacy. There's no saying, well, that's my, my family's business. There's no saying that's my family's land. There's no saying my, that's my family's property. That's my family's. There's none of that. There's no incentive to work hard to leave your kids off a better future. Because why would you work your butt off when you know if you die, it's all gone to the state? Why would you work for the state like that? Confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. Again, you're just taking property. If you don't like people or if it's a rebel or they speak out, just take the property. Imagine living in that society. Because you have no capital. You don't have private property rights. You have no God-given rights. Number five, and this is important, is this is critical when you understand. Centralization of credit is in the hands of the states by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. So the state can do what it wants. This is an incredibly powerful tool. This is incredibly powerful because you're seeing this with the gun right, the gun lobby at the minute. All the banks are saying, we don't want to lend to you. If you have a business that the state doesn't like or the state doesn't think is worthy, then guess what? You can't get state capital. And they have an exclusive monopoly. It's not like you can go down the road. There is no competition. Karl Marx understood that if you control bank and you control the, the money, guess what? State is controlled with everything. This goes back to an argument that is an old argument, but especially came present, prevalent in 2007 and 2008 when banks got bailed out by George Bush and the Republicans. When you have the centralization of credit and you have government involved in business, sure, your person might not abuse it. Your person might be fine and the next person might be fine. But if you set the precedent and someone else is involved in that business 10, 20 years from now, a bad president... They can control what you do, and you no longer have freedom. uh, Six, centralization of the means of communication and transport into the hands of the state. You've seen this argument recently with net neutrality. To have the state control all communication. Because if the state controls all communication, guess what? Only certain voices get heard. You can only have certain communication with certain people. And if they control the transport, where's the innovation? Seven, extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands, and the improvement of the style generally in accordance with the common plan. So this is where the planners really come into play in in Marxism. The common plan. They have this great plan of utopia of where things are going to be and how things are going to work. You know, there's a famous story... Uh, Reagan used to always tell us of uh, the Russian premier visiting the farms and the, there's a crop of potatoes and the the premier says to the, the little farmer, he says, so tell me about your potatoes, you know, how great are they or how, how awesome are they? Oh, all my potatoes are, they're round, they're firm, they're gorgeous, they're beautiful, they're the most luscious potatoes you'll ever hear. 
And he says, how many have we got? Oh, my God, if we were to pile all the potatoes we have access to and that we've created, they would literally, they would literally go as high into the sky to the foot of God. And the premier corrects the person straight away because, you know, you can't, have, you can't have free thought. Oh, we don't talk about God here. Uh, there is no God. You know, the state is the God. And the farmer replies, oh, that's okay. There are no potatoes. Um, that is the common plan. They will decide what's best for you. You know, on a side note, there's this. Do you ever think how lucky you are as an American? America is a wonderful nation, and there are certain things that have avoided America for you can decide whatever reason. But one of the things America has never had is a famine. Ireland's had a famine. Ireland had a potato famine, and potatoes are not rare over here. Other countries have famines on a regular basis. Now, less regular because of, a, of technology, but famines used to be fairly popular. Famines were very popular 200 years ago. Why has America never had one? Might be something just to think about, just, you know, when you're, when you're sitting on, this, on the Sabbath on Sunday or Monday, just think about why, I'm, I'm not going to tell you my opinion, you know, because you, you can make it about a God thing, you could talk about divine providence, you could talk about capitalism, just something to think about, why has America never really experienced a big food shortage, food, food shortage or a famine? But everything basically is owned by the state. The state has say in everything. Number eight, an equal obligation of all to work. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. This is the one thing, in some ways, I actually respect about Karl Marx. If, there was, if you said to me, John, I need you to tell me one thing you respect about Karl Marx. Karl Marx is actually different to what you see in a lot of radical democratic people and democratic politicians and socialists today. Karl Marx had no time for people who didn't want to work. You know these people who just live off of loads of benefits, who just want to screw the system? There's, I, I won't make this about America, I'll make this about Ireland. There are people in Ireland who have no intentions of ever working. Their families have never worked, yet they live off the system, they have kids, they get every benefit known to man. And they have no interest in con- contributing to society. And people will hold this up as a success of socialism, how great and how compassionate we are. If you said to me, what would I respect about Karl Marx? It would probably be that he had no time for those people. He called them lumpen proletariat. He had no interest in representing them. He said everyone had to work. Now, there was many things after that you didn't like. But he, that was one of the things he did get. Everyone had, a, everyone had a responsibility to work. And if you didn't, he didn't have time for you. So everyone had an equal obligation to all work. Number nine, a combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population over the country. Now, this is, this is where Karl Marx starts to get really frightening. So what he, not only does he want a classless society, he also wants a boundaryless society where, you know, there is no city and towns. It's just, you know, it's, you, the government decides where you live. And if you don't happen to want to live in the city and you have to live in the city, tough luck. Likewise, just been told where to live because the state owns everything. You don't, you can't decide where you live. You have no freedom to choose. You have no freedom to move. You'll go where you're told to go. The state owns everything. And ten, free education for all children in public schools, abolition of children's factory labor in all its present form, and a combination of education with industrial production. Ten. That's number ten. Now it may sounds great, free education. And you might think there's some noble intent of, you know, ab- abolition of child's labor factories. 
there is some noble intent there, I'm sure. But the reason that is is because it's propaganda. It's not free education. It's free propaganda to ensure everyone thinks the same way, to ensure everyone goes through a system to understand that you have to be re-educated. You have to think a certain way. And if you control kids, kids, if you control the way they think and you, you shape their worldview, they're less likely to question it when they become adults. So you have less revolutions. That's Karl Marx's 10 points in the Communist Manifesto. Now let's do something really unpopular. Let's have an honest conversation about Republicans and Democrats and how many of these points they actually support. Abolition of property and land. And the application of all rents of land to public purposes. I can make an argument both parties support that. I don't see there are a handful in the Republican Party who are generally libertarian-minded who don't actually believe in property taxes and who don't believe in and think uh, eminent domain is a good thing, who actually think, you know what, the state can come and take it. There are a few people who would fight that, who would stop it, and regardless of the situation. So, But the vast majority do. So that's the first one. A heavy progressive or graduated income tax. I could make an argument the vast majority of both parties support a, a progressive graduated income tax. You support a graduated income tax because even even conservative allies will talk about a graduated income tax where, you know, if you earn $20,000 and under, you pay 5%. If you earn 20 to 50, you earn te- pay 10%. And the riches will always pay the highest percentage. That's a graduated income tax. I've, I very rarely see... The only person in modern recent history where I've seen talk opposite to that is Herman Cain, where he had the 999 plan in 2012, where it was just a flat tax. A progressive tax. You still have a huge tax burden on the richest people in society. You do have a heavy progressive tax, and a large chunk of Republicans support that, and all Democrats support that. And I don't see many people coming up with policies to change that. Under Obama and under the Tea Party, there were great debates, which I was honoured to be part on, take part on in line, where it was a debate between the flat tax and the fair tax. I haven't seen those debates in a long time. Number three, abolition of all right and of inheritance. So, in truth, neither party really wants all right inheritance. There's probably a few on the kooky left that would say, yeah, absolutely, take all inheritance. I haven't heard any mainstream talk that. However, both sides seem to like an inheritance tax of some description. So it's Mark's light on number three. Confiscation of all property of all immigrants and rebels. Um, not of immigrants. Rebels, it suppose depends on your definition of rebels. So let's just, let's give both sides the benefit and say you haven't done number four. Or you don't want number four. Five, centralized of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Again, you haven't fully embraced that, but you have government involved in banks. You know, the, the sad truth about a couple of things about banks, you know, from a pure business and economic point of view, to show you the power the banks have and to show you the power of the government in the banking industry Normally when industries, if you look through history, industries go through massive times of crisis and there's a massive damage to the brand of an industry, which happened in 2007 and 2008 with Lehman Brothers and Fannie Mae and all these other banks. That industry was crazy. The reputation to this day, not many people like banks. You never hear going, oh, my bank is so awesome. You don't really hear that. There was a great void to be filled there. 
The fact of the matter that, that says there was no new big company that came out and said, hey, look, we're new. We don't have the, the, the we're, our reputation is good. We're this type of business. We're clean. We're wholesome. Even if they weren't, even if they just came out and that was all propaganda and spin. But the fact that no one came out shows you the power the bank has over its industry through regulation and through um, legislation and power of Congress. And what I mean by that is, if you think of opening up a new business tomorrow, whether it's a bank, whether it's an auto shop, whether it's a, a candy shop, the first person that you probably think of hiring is maybe a manager. The second person you probably think of is a salesperson, you know, a front of house, you know, to, to process it. In the banking industry, the fact is the first person you would have to hire is someone to do with compliance. The second person would probably be a compliance person as well. The third and fourth people would probably be some version of compliance to tell you how you can operate. The fact of the matter, the banking industry has little to no innovation room because it cannot have, say, I have this great new product, I'm going to launch it. Like, it can't come up with going, hey, I have, the new, I have this new product that's called an iPhone. It has to go get approval from Congress first. Uh, centralization of communication and transport into the hands of the state I would say that mostly is the Democratic Party but there are some in the Republican Party who campaign for net neutrality they wanted that was obviously one big part of it transport you still have state transportation again it's not too I'd give the Republican Party the benefit of doubt on that and in some part of the Democratic Party but also transportation is going to change so much over the next 10, 15 years that you that could come back. Like, just give you one just one little story. You're starting to see it. You're seeing it in England. There's major issues over how you're just having the banning of Uber. You know, you cannot... We control the taxi industry. We're regulating the taxi industry. This fact you have Uber drivers, no, you can't have that. You're not getting an Uber license. And I think London was the last place that said, no, you can't have it. So you do see cities and states taking control of it and saying no to competition factories and instruments of production owned by the state i don't know most republicans don't want that but they do want to be in bed with it they do love being in bed and telling businesses how to operate again the fact i can prove this is if you look at the legislation and the regulation of business they're in part you have no free choice you have the choice to choose, but everything product you choose has been approved by the government for you. If the government says you have to operate and work a certain product this way, it's in tr- it has power over everything. A government, a, a body can't come out and say, I'm going to offer you this new toilet. If it doesn't meet federal standards, it does not get sold. Same with light bulbs. Same with cars, cafe standards. So you, the government is involved in it, but it doesn't... Co- it controls what it can make and through legislation and regulation, but it doesn't own it. How much of a difference? That's up for you to decide. Eight, equal obligation of all to work. You could take that in many different ways. One, equal obligation. Democrats don't. Some Republicans don't. But also, do you really have to work? So like if you have a situation where and let's just use a modern day. If you happen to be one of those lucky people who went, hey, you know what, I'm going to buy a thousand Bitcoin at two cents, and then you sold it at $20,000, do you have an obligation to work? If you want to live off of that for the rest of your life, do you really need an obligation to work? Just something to think about. Uh, number nine, combination of agriculture with magnif- manufacturing industries, uh, breaking up town and county. Uh, there are some central planners. 
I wouldn't say many have thought you have gone that far yet. But if you get to a point where society needs to be broke up and the power government is is so powerful, could that happen in 10, 20, 30 years in America? If you keep on this path, absolutely. And lastly, free education for all children in public schools. I would say that is a vast 99.9% of Democrats and probably, what, 75-80% of Republicans? They believe in free education? I bring this up for some couple of reasons. One, one of the things I want to do in this show going forward is I want to talk about principles more and do special shows like this type of show on just focusing on one issue. We can have a conversation about, and we're going to have them going forward in the next couple of weeks, about what are the solutions. If you want to play Team Jerseys, because I got a bit of feedback over the last couple of weeks because I said some nice things about Donald Trump. People are going, oh, are, you on, are you on the Trump train now? No, I'm not on anybody's train. I'm on the principal's train, regardless of who holds power. There are people out there who want to make this about left and right. There are people out there who want to make this about Donald Trump or Barack Obama or ever who the Democrats run in 2020. I'm on nobody's train. The answers to America's problems, the answer to the Communist Manifesto is the Declaration of Independence. Because ultimately what Karl Marx wanted is what every other statist in society wants. We can call it Marxism, we can call it socialism, we can call it progressivism, we can call it Republican Party, we can call it Democratic Party, we can call it Leninism, we can call it whatever we want. It is statism. It is the power to say and compel you to act a certain way. Even if acting in that way is for your best interest, that someone, whether it's a king, whether it's popularity contest, whether it's a congress, whether it's a parliament, whether it's a dictator, whether it's an oligarch, the fact that you have someone to tell you what you should do is statism. It is some form of state. The state is the power. It doesn't matter how the state got its power. The fact is the state has the power. The answer to this is American freedom. It is the Declaration of Independence. It is the Constitution. It is the Bill of Rights. It is your founding documents that says, no, we do believe in government. We are not anarchists. I am not an anarchist. I believe in a strong centralized government. I just happen to believe in a strong centralized government that is extremely limited, extremely defined in its scope and its power. And that it does very little. But I do believe in a strong centralized government. I am not an anarchist. But the answer is to give everyone as much freedom as imaginably possible. To let them control their destiny. When we come back, I want to share some history. Because I know there might be some people who will listen to my critique of Marx and go, well, John, look, I get your, I get your, you know, I've heard you and other people talk about Marxism and, and you, you know, you right-wingers always talk about Marx's legacy of, of Mao and Stalin and Pot and all the people who are dead. I didn't mention it in this show for a purpose, for a reason. I didn't want to distract from it. I wanted to use his own words. But, it would, you know, if it would just happen in America, because Americans do things better. You're the one who always says that, John. American things do better. We would do socialism better than the rest of the world, and we can be the one country where socialism works. Well, when we come back, I'm going to share some history with you of socialism actually been practiced in America and how it fails. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back. 
This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. I want 60 conservative senator, <laughs> oh, senators. Wow. Not even the 50. I want 60 that you can count on for conservative principles every time. Not just once in a while, not just when it benefits them politically, mm-hmm. every time. Okay, well, when you create that world, do I get an invitation? <laughs> no, I'm going to keep you guys out of it because you're that? smart, Alex. What That's why. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Freedom's Disciple On Demand On the Blaze Radio Network Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. I hope today's show has has given you something to ponder upon. So, people always say to me, and people have said to me in the past, you know, look, I get what your point about socialism around the world, but, you know, you're always the one who says America can do things better than everyone else. We can do socialism better than everyone else. You know, don't always compare us to how, how we do socialism to, to, like, Venezuela or Cuba. Well, here's the thing. America has done socialism. And I'm, this is not some, you know, smart remark of, ah, there's Barack Obama. No. America has historically done socialism, and I want to explain two times America has done socialism and what happens. So, the first one is a long time ago. If I was narrating a story like the guy writing for the New York Times, I might start in a, in a place a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, in a place called Jamestown. Well, in Jamestown, when the colonists first came over, they had a system of socialism. They didn't call it socialism. They didn't, obviously, Marx wasn't born. But they practiced a version of socialism. Because what they did was they all came over and they obviously knew each other and had some type of bond and relationship with each other. And they had this big burn. They had a store. And everyone had their different talents. So, you know, you had woodworkers, you had masons. You had farmers and agricultural people. You had cooks. But basically, they had a store. And everything that you created just went into the store. And what you would do is, let's just just take a very simple example. So you're a potato farmer, okay? You would bring all your potatoes and put it in the store. That would be your contribution, to the thing, and as more pota- as more potatoes grew, you would then harvest them and pick them and clean them and do what you, the process that you did, and then you'd bring them to the store. And in return, you would have access to the store. That you know, if you needed um, if you needed vegetables, or you needed uh, a horseshoe for your horse, or you needed wood, whatever it was, you would come to the store because someone else would bring those things, and you would take them. And because you gave potatoes, and someone else needed potatoes, they would take them. But it was general. There was no checks and balances. There was no limit to what you could take. There was no, well, you, you know, gave 100 potatoes and that gives you, you know, 10 credits and you have... No, there was none of that. It was just, you come, you do your thing, you work. That sounds like a great system. Like, there are some... If you forget about history and you forget about human nature and you forget about how we suck as humans in some ways if you want to just be very vulgar about it, 
socialism is very, that type of socialism is very appealing where you know you have a society and you all just come and we're all equal and you know you contribute and me as a farmer of potatoes means the same as a a a welder and a uh, you know a mason making horseshoes and it makes the same as someone doing lumber there is something very appealing i get the appeal of it it's it's a fair society and everyone's happy however you have to take out human history and you have to take out human intent you have to understand that deep down two things one we're inherently flawed two we're inherently lazy and three we always want an advantage we all want a deal you know this human nature of you know you think of a of a deal you know when you're doing any transaction when you're buying a car you know if you're going buying a second-hand car you always want to get the best deal possible you want to you know hammer down the price if someone says you know you're buying a second-hand car for your kid who's just graduated college you're paying two thousand dollars if you can get them down to 1800 you feel like you've won right everyone wants the best deal that's human nature when you have that human nature and the laziness and people are flawed and people suck, it doesn't work in socialism. Because what happened in Jamestown? Well, people got lazy. Because when you had a store that just literally gave you anything you want, where is the incentive to work? Why should I work? I'm just going to sit here and let y'all do the work and I'll just go to the store and I'll pick stuff and I'll take my lumber that I need and I'll take, you know, my food and I'll take my chickens and I'll take my eggs and I'll take whatever I need. Why should I work? It's going to be there. It's free, right? As someone who lives in a socialist nature, in a socialist country, the amount of times people take stuff because it's quote-unquote free, it's not free. The taxpayers paid for it, but it's free. Ah, why? Sure, I'll just take it. So what happened in Jamestown? Well, bad, lazy people destroyed it. A couple of things happened. One, mortality rates started to rise rather quickly. Which led to issues within the camp. And people got lazier and lazier. Why should I work? And then it led to eventually cannibalism. You see, people said, what about me? I produce more than they do. And when you see people taking from the store, it's human nature. If you, even if you have the most pure socialist intent, even modern-day socialism, if you're out there working 10, 12, 14 hours a day and you see someone coming and taking and doing absolutely nothing, it's only human nature to be resentful. So Jamestown didn't work. It failed. What happened and what replaced Jamestown? In many ways, what replaced them is what we would later call free market economics, where people still contribute to the store, but they were paid for it. They were brought their stuff, and then if they didn't like the price the store quote-unquote gave them, they traded with someone else. And through benefits, people made their lives better, because they said, you know what, I can contribute to society, I can make things better, and I have the right to control the fruits of my own labor. And I have the right to control the price of my labor. I can ask a price, and if you're not willing to pay for it, I'll find someone who will. And if I don't, I might come back to you. Market forces. But John, you're probably saying, John, that's so long ago. Our society has evolved so much since the colonists. Okay. Let me talk to you about another person. There is a place called Harmony, Indiana. And an individual called Robert Owen. Now, this is your history, not mine. And Robert Owen wasn't an American. 
But he traveled to America in 1824. And he arrived in January 1825 in Harmony, Indiana. And he decided to have a society that was based around socialist principles. Because he came from Europe and he went, you know what, I see how the way to go. I'm going to bring that to America. So he set up this place, Harmony, Indiana, and there were certain things. There was no private property allowed. There were no lands, no animals. The community owned everything. You got a job, you fought for your job, you kept your job, and you could take what you wanted. Didn't last. Why did it not last? Well, the same reasons it didn't last in Jamestown. Lasted about two years. It also happened in Texas. It happened in 1855. Victor Considerant, huh? Victor Considerant. Yes, he is a Frenchman. In 1855, he went to a place called Reunion, La Reunion. Because I'm a Frenchman. In Dallas, Texas. And he had a large sum of money, and basically what he bought was he bought a load of land, he bought a load of animals, and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build a socialist utopia. I'm sure he thought, you know, other places failed because they had to start from scratch. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy all the land. We're going to own the land. We'll buy all the animals. And he even went further than what Robert Owen did in Harmony, Indiana. He actually said people would share in the profits. But the answer was the same. Didn't work. Human nature. People took more than they put in. People got lazy. People went, what about me? Why am I working hard? And they're not working hard. People valued their labor more than other people. Why is my labor worth the same as someone else's? And eventually it fails. So socialism has been tried three times in America. Jamestown, Robert Owen in Harmony, Indiana, and Victor Considerant in La Reunion in Texas, in Dallas. About, I think it's about 30 minutes from where the Blaze Studios are, which is ironic. Why does socialism never work? I want to finish up with a couple of things. Socialism never works because no matter how much you try, people are willing to pay different prices for different products. The fact that matter of that you think that you can have the same warrant, the same purchase price for something like um, lumber as the same as a loaf of bread, as the same as a potato that you have to, you know, keep in the soil for several months. That you can have this even distribution of pricing. It doesn't work that way. Some people will have to do more work. Some people will have to do more regular work. The fact that, you know, a farmer has to maybe wait a couple of months for that spud to go from being a little seed to a, a, an actual potato. It can peel, pick and be given into the shop compared to a baker that can get yeast and build, make, bake a bread every day. But it doesn't take into account the fact that sometimes people don't want what you have. So you'll have excesses. You'll have shortages. There is market forces. Even in socialism, you have market forces. People want certain things or people don't want them. When you have socialism, there's no gathering for that. There's no incentive. Under capitalism, you do. There's also the idea of private property, that you were working towards something. When you have socialism and you have, especially that extreme type of socialism that we just spoke about in Jamestown, there's no incentive to work harder. 
if you have a piece of land, let's just use the. I'm using I'm using spuds an awful lot in this show, so let's continue that trend of spuds and potatoes. What's the incentive to work harder? If you have, let's say, let's just keep it simple. You have ten acres of land, and you all you literally do is, you know, create spuds, create potatoes, you know, uh, grow them. Where's the incentive to to grow? If you have everything going into the, the to that store in Jamestown, where's the incentive? Where's the incentive to go? Would well, you know what I'm actually gonna get? I'm actually gonna go save up and I'm gonna buy another five acres of land and make that land fer- make that land fertile and grow another five uh, eight, uh, acres of potatoes because it just goes into the store. There's no incentive to be hard work. Whereas when you have the incentive to have private property to keep what you own to make a better life for you and your family and your kids, you then work hard and you save. You don't take, you know, you don't spend as much money. You save and you buy that extra piece of land. You get that extra five acres. You, you fertilize that, you make it, and then you sell it to someone else. And then you start saving up again, and then you get another five acres. And then you get another couple of acres. And then all of a sudden, that original 10-acre farm for growing potatoes might be now 25 or 50 acres or 100 acres. Or you might off-branch in something else going, you know what? You know what, I've been looking at other people and what they do. There's a real demand for cabbage in our area. Okay, well then I'm going to go save up and I'm going to buy five acres of land and I'm going to I'm gonna grow cabbages. Off you go, because cabbages are popular. But there's no incentive for, for supply and demand for market forces because all of a sudden, you know, you've bought your five acres of land of cabbages and someone else has followed you and a couple of other people are now doing cabbages. And there's so much cabbage in the store that people are going, oh my God, all oh, they come in here every day for food for the family and all there is is cabbages. Well, then you can see that and kind of go, you know what, I'm not, because I have to sell them because I need to make money because I need to make money to put food on the table. I'm not going to grow cabbages anymore. I'm going to grow cra- carrots because carrots are actually better. You know, one of my favorite stories is about how people, you know, how people through innovation change things. So I'm sure you've heard of the story, George Washington Carver. Back in the old days, one of the problems they had down south was on the cotton, where they grow cotton. And I don't know if you know this about cotton, but you can only grow it on average for about six years. In the old-fashioned days, farmers would grow cotton for six years, and on the seventh year, they would let the land rest. Now, as you can imagine, this caused major problems for, for families, because you would grow cotton and you would sell it for six years, but on the seventh year, you'd have nothing to trade. So what, did you, what would you do? Well, true, I'm not going to give the whole story now because it'll take away from it, but one of the things George Washington Carver found was peanuts. Not only did they, you know, could the soil grow peanuts after being destroyed by the cotton gin, that what they would do is they would, pe- they would grow peanuts that they would trade on the seventh year. But also what they found was whatever, I don't know the scientific term for this, I apologize, but whatever's in peanuts, whatever nutrients it did, not only did it help them, you know, survive the financial loss of not been selling cotton that year, it actually grew, made the soil better. Whatever nutrients come about through growing peanuts, it made the soil better. You only find that out through innovation. If you have socialism or you have a store and you're growing cotton, you go, well, you know what? I was, I did, I grew cotton for the last six years. There's no incentive for me to grow and anything for the seven year. I'm just going to sit back and let someone else take the brunt of the load. Let someone else feed me and my family. What you also have when you have socialism is what's the opinion on the common good? 
You heard this in the Marxists that we spoke about a few minutes ago. Everything is based on the common good. And you better hope you're on the side of the common good. Because if you're not, you get ostracized. You get removed from society. You're, you're one of those rebels. You're one of those problems that needs to be solved. There is no room for not being on the common good. Lastly, and here's something that is dreadfully missing from society today. A word called responsibility. Where is the responsibility? When you have a system like Jamestown, where you have a store, where's the responsibility? Whose responsibility is it? Where you have a system where, let's just take it about food. Let's make it about pure food. Where Whose responsibility is it for you to feed your family? When you have a system like Jamestown, where you have a store, it's not your responsibility because you're not the, let's say you're the, the, I don't know, the person who makes the horse and carts or the ox and carts, or you make the picks. So you have nothing to do with food. Whose responsibility is it to feed your family? In some places like Jamestown, where you have a store, the responsibility, the onus is not on you. It's on the onus on, on people growing the proper soil by, you know, having the right animals and doing things the right way and putting it in the store and you getting some. The responsibility in free markets is a question, is you. You are responsible. And sometimes when things don't go right, when things don't go right, you have to understand, you have to find. You can't just sit back and go, well, look, I, my job was to do this, but it didn't work out this year. But I can still go to the store and take whatever I need, even if I didn't res- produce anything. I tried. The responsibility is always on you to set provide for your family. That is the difference between what people would call capitalism today and, and socialism. I want to finish up at one last point, though. There is one problem we have in society today, and part of it is caused because we have removed ourselves from the farms. There is a variation of socialism that is practiced by, to this day, by farmers and people who work in agriculture. And people would say it's socialism, it isn't. It's voluntarism. It's been a volunteer. When you work on farms, especially you've been around farms that produce food, you understand one critical thing. And you learn so many life lessons if you've ever been around farms. And that life lesson is, you can do absolutely everything right, but it doesn't matter. You're still reliant on someone else, on a higher power. You can plant things at the right time. You can look after them. You can give them the best nutrients, the most expensive nutrients. You can literally massage them. You can sing to your crops if you want, if you think they make them grow quicker. If a drought comes or a flood comes and you can't control it, your land and your soil and your crop could be destroyed. And then you got to replant and wait for it. The one great thing about society and farms, especially, and I think this is so apt for America and how America has changed, where like you look at polls from like 200 years ago, 80% of people in America worked in agriculture. And you look at it today, it's what, 5%? But one of the aspects was they understood one simple thing that it was a community. Anytime you used to see people, like give you a prime example, sheep. And it happens over in Ireland, this sense of community, where you have one person focus on one different aspect of the sheep. So you'll have one person who's great at, you know, at sheep birth. You'll have another who's great at shearing the sheep. You'll have another person who's great at dipping sheep. 
you have that sense of community and that you get all together. So like, I'll help you dip your sheep if you help me shear mine, if you help me birth mine. And you have this sense of community. But you also have this understanding that you have to stick together. You're seeing this in America to this day with fodder. There's a fodder crisis in parts of America right now. The federal government isn't solving it. It's people, strangers from other parts of the country, just delivering it. They don't know them. They have no connection to them. There's this understanding in the agricultural industry that you can do everything right, but still have everything go wrong. It's, I'm going to quote a religious saying to you, so get into your safe space if you don't like religious. There's an old saying, uh, there, be, there be it for me, for the grace of God, go I. I know I butchered that. But it means, you know, just because I got lucky doesn't mean I will be lucky next time. But this sense of community, this sense of voluntary volunteering, of helping each other, is this farming and an agricultural thing historically. And it's a part of society we miss today. At its core, simple thing, there are some nice aspects of social where you help each other out, but it's forced. There is no such good part where you force someone to help anyone else. What should happen is you voluntarily help people out. And that is where I think we need to have a look at our society and see, let's start promoting the good. I spoke last week about we need to find ways to empower people. Because I'm going to leave you with this, and this is another special I'm working on for down the road. But I'd love your opinion on this. Anytime I talk about economics, people, you know, every, everything's related to politics now. If I speak about a principle, oh, well, why are you, are you for Trump? Are you against Trump? Are you for the GOP? Are you against the GOP? Are you for the Democrats? I'm not for any of them. I'm for principles. But let's take a country. Let's, we've discovered a new country. Would you take everything the way it is in America today and say to that country, this is the way you should do it? Or would you say, here is some of the good things that we've learned, but here are things we need to change. Because I believe America is a great country. But I think we are not doing ourselves any favors with such a defense of capitalism, the way it's practiced today. And I think one of the things I'm going to try and work on is start telling you, well, the answer is not capitalism. The answer is free markets. The answer is free markets. And yes, there is a difference. There's a very big difference. But that's a conversation for another day. I hope today you've enjoyed this presentation, this special presentation on Karl Marx. I've tried to make it as interesting, as fun as possible. It's, I know it's a hard subject. I'd ask you if you have any friends and family, share it with them. Because we need to get this uh, myth about Marx being a good guy. And especially to people who are young who are millennials, who are college people, who think Karl Marx was cool and Lenin was a good guy and a hero. We need to break these narratives, but we need to break them in a sense of principles. As always, we finish up today's show the way we always do, by saluting the real heroes in society, your police, your firefighters, your emergency personnel, and your vets. And most importantly, I salute you, the American people. To quote to Tocqueville, the sentiments of Tocqueville, America is great because Americans are good. America is great because Americans are good. That is each and every one of you. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern on, on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play Music, Stitcher FM or Omni FM. This is Freedom's Disciple. Have a beautiful and blessed week. God bless. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.